And good morning. Welcome to Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. Byline Mendocino is a local media roundtable focusing on local news and newsmakers here in Mendocino County and today in our neighboring county, Lake County. In the first half of the show, our local media roundtable members are Ariel Carmona, the managing editor at the Lake County Record B, and Danila Sands of Mendocino Action News. At 9.30, I'll be speaking with Cap Radio's Scott Rod, who along with NPR's California Newsroom just published a jaw-dropping investigation revealing that Governor Gavin Newsom lied about the number of acres of wildfire prevention projects completed in the state by a whopping 690%. This is a statewide story with obvious importance to us here in Mendocino. Two of the projects that were underreported are the Ukiah and Willits Shaded Fuel Breaks projects. So we'll be talking with reporter Scott Rod in the second half of the show. But first, I want to introduce this week's local journalists. Ariel Carmona is the managing editor of the Lake County Record B, Lake County's only daily print newspaper. He started out as the city editor at the Willits News here in Mendocino County, and after moving to Lake County, he finds himself wearing many hats at his small local paper. He's currently working on a series about homelessness in the region and keeping up with unsettling reports about COVID-19 numbers in rural Northern California, which are still surging. Welcome, Ariel. Thank you. It's good to say thank you for having me on. It's great to have you here on KZYX. And Danila Sands is the administrator of Mendocino Action News, the indispensable breaking news Facebook page covering fires, traffic, accidents, and other emergencies in Mendocino County in real time. This fire season, she has teamed up with KZYX to provide emergency information for our listeners during disasters, a collaboration we are very thrilled about. And just this week, she was at the scene of the broiler fire in Redwood Valley that destroyed three homes and several outbuildings. Thanks for being here, Danila. Thank you for having me. Great to hear your voice. Um, Let's start by having you each talk about a story that you covered this week. Ariel, what was significant in your newsroom this week? Um, I think there's a number of significant items. I think uh, uh, most recently I was um, trying to um, follow up on a story that our partner um, newspapers in the Bay Area covered regarding the um, California counties, rural counties in California, having a spike in the uh, COVID-19 cases, which is um, has been uh, significant. And it depends on who you talk to, because a lot of people will say, well, you know, an increase of 10 cases or in- an increase of X number of cases may or may not be a worrisome, 50% or near 50% in our county. And a lot of our counties have been fully vaccinated and that mirrors the state um, averages or the state statistics, then it is concerning. And so I've been trying to follow up and localize that story to see what's happening um, here in, in our in our county. Um, in addition to that, um, uh, peripherally, um, the grand jury report um, came out. And so the grand jury report, which is an annual, well, you know, readers may be familiar with, with that annual practice of gathering a grand jury and then they come out with some findings and they had some findings on um evacuation all cut it's a really wide widespread report and i'm barely digging into it now um so yeah that's kind of what i've been focusing on this this whole week grand jury reports are fascinating because they're so crucial to our understanding of the functioning of our local government but who has the time to really dig in and contextualize it so that we really rely on local journalists for that stuff so i'm glad to hear that you are digging into it um let me just return to the COVID 19 story 
What are we, a year and a half into this, and yet COVID-19 for Lake County is still among your top reporting that you're paying close, close attention to. Uh, Why is that? Well, we never really did. And um, uh, although Lake County did not have the um the great amount of uh daily numbers that we had during the surges with uh, other areas with a different demographic you know like sacramento and obviously la and those big cities um we still had um a number of us uh, a, a, a bit of a surge during the peak um amount you know during the peak time in 2020 and it was significant significantly impacted um you know like everywhere else how um businesses were dealing, you know, what what the schools were doing, all facets of life. Um, and now we're kind of hitting a little bit of a peak. You know, I noticed that um, in the last, since the end of June, um, our um, our numbers have been incredibly, increasingly going up. So we used, I, I think it hasn't been until like early part of the year, like February or March, where we had numbers in double figures and we're in double figures again. We, we have up to 50 cases now in the, at the last report which at first, again, it may not sound a lot, but when you're a steady, um, a steady rate, you know, so we have 50 cases reported and um, our death counts went up from uh, in the 40s to, uh, I think the, the last time I looked was up to like 65 deaths, you know, and um, that's concerning because we don't know what the breakdown is, you know, are these, um, I know that um, the county, uh, county uh, health department has been looking into updating their numbers or doing what they call a reconciliation reconciliation of their stats um, because they're required by the state to do so. But other than that, you know, there hasn't been uh, a lot of um, really uh, elaboration on what the what the new numbers means. And that's that's obviously something that we definitely need to keep an eye on. And how has Lake County done in your estimation over the last year and a half in getting out information to the public about the local coronavirus rates and um, communicating with the local press? Well, I will say that, um, okay, we had a um, a report, a county reporter who is no longer around. So I kind of came in sort of the middle of uh, reporting on that. But I will say that when we had our uh, public off, uh, public health officer, Dr. Gary Pace, um, who, you know, is a familiar name, definitely in Lake County and probably Sonoma County because he, he is from the Sonoma County area. Um, he was there uh, he for the, the duration of COVID and just actually left his post or stepped down in um, late April. And I had a good, in the beginning, it was kind of spotty. I mean, um, uh, in terms of the press and uh, communications with the press and the, uh, and also the, the public, where we wouldn't get a lot of uh, uh, breakdowns or, stati- uh, you know, that type of information of a statistical nature. Like we knew where the cases were in the different districts, you know, um, you know, how many cases were in Clear Lake, the city of Clear Lake or Lakeport, for example, which are the big cities here. But we didn't really get a lot of breakdown on, on, until we got higher numbers. And to his credit, he always said, well, we don't want to sort of um, th- reveal a lot, of, a lot of information. There's privacy concerns. And even though they're not giving out, you know, names and, you know, um, stuff like that, um, they wanted to wait until there were higher case numbers. I think it was like over 100 cases or something like that. And then they would break down more information. And to his credit, he kept his word and he did that. Um, and I had a good uh, working relationship with Dr. Pace. Like um, I would email him or I would contact him and, and somebody from his office or, or Dr. Pace himself would, would um, 
eventually get back to me and answer some questions and, and give some detailed information. And in addition to that, he was very good at um, writing his own press releases and giving us periodic updates on what our numbers were, what our cases were, what the death rate was, and um, things like that, you know. Ever since he left, it's been a little bit, um, there's a transition now, so we're not getting as much. I mean, we're still getting week weekly or periodic updates, but it's not nearly the amount, I feel, in my opinion, the amount of information that we were getting in the past. All right. Um, interesting that even though the pandemic is still raging, uh, we're getting kind of less information. It feels like we're both winding down and ramping up at the same time. Um, right. Danila, how about you? You, uh, you administer Mendocino Action News. What were you covering this week? I think most people know in Mendocino County, we had a very large wildfire that took off on the 7th of July. Um, I believe around 145 and um, it consumed 80 acres and as of last night it was reported at 75 percent containment um, red valley Calpella fire department um, took over as cal fire was assisting prior to that so i don't have the the update this morning but i um i can tell you you know three structures were destroyed uh, we know two of those families um, it was in red valley it's a small town, small community that was already impacted by a very large fire in 2017. Um, so many people felt this uh, widespread when this happened again. Um, two of the families, you know, started a GoFundMe account and are well known in the community. Um, Phillips, uh, she had worked for the Minnesota County Sheriff's Office, very sweet lady that has helped out with the church locally. Um, and they've had that home for over 70 years in the family. So that was very devastating to hear. Um, the Araguins, which I'm probably not saying that correctly, um, they also lost their family home and are still looking for their family cat. Um, so a lot of people in the community are encouraging them that uh, sometimes a cat can be lost for weeks or months. They're very scared of the fire and the smoke and the different strangers showing up um, to fight the fire and will sometimes return back, you know, weeks, months, and um, some cases in the people have talked about years later. So people are just trying to give them hope that, you know, um, and excuse me, that family cat was the Phillips cat. Um, and so there's also six outbuildings were destroyed and two outbuildings were damaged. Um, so many people crowded the 101 because it was on the west side of the freeway right there. And that was the only parking before the road was closed. Uh, a lot of people were parked to help people uh, evacuate. Um, some people parked there to run in. Uh, I talked to a man. He said his wife ran in to rescue him. Um, he had an oxygen tank and other things he needed. And some people had ran in to rescue animals, um, but were not allowed to move their vehicle that way. Uh, the emergency personnel were doing high, low sirens. You could hear that at the same time that you can hear propane tanks going off. So, and it, you know, you could hear it throughout the community. The fire, the plume of smoke was so big that the nearby counties were also alerted about it and were concerned where the fire was. Uh, the wind was at least 20 miles per hour, I was hearing. It was pretty fast. It was spreading south. So they call it the broiler fire because it was behind the broilers where it started. It's just a location point. So some people are confused if the iconic building was destroyed or damaged. Uh, I went on scene, and it was about 10, 20 feet away from the back end. And they had a, a beautiful gravel uh, walk, you know, kind of paved driveway, if you will, surrounding the building that really helped with the clearance. Um, they actually used it as an incident command post. Um, so they did a nice job with making sure everything was clear enough for fire personnel to have a safe place to kind of, you know, work on the fire. 
and then it spread south, if you will, through businesses and um, and residentials and you know homes, and you can even see it on the freeway there. And so then the last couple of days, I've just been kind of working on hot spots and anything that's restarted. If you can recall with other fires, like the Oak Fire, I remember like months later, a tree had, you know, restarted on 101. So that's mm-hmm. the kind of things they're keeping an eye on, even for even when the fire personnel leave and uh, residents are still at home. That's something just to, you know, be vigilant about. Watch your surroundings, you know, make sure nothing's restarting up. And there's a lot of pink retardant on everything because we had some uh, tankers coming so the fire personnel, homes, playgrounds, um, I've seen a lot of structures and homes just covered in this pink retardant. Um, so they're taking the time to wash that off, but I'm sure they're grateful that their home is still there and that um, no, there was no loss of life or animals at this point. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, and then we also had the new um, Firehawk from Boggs, uh, which is pretty impressive. You know, we're used to Copter 101 grabbing the bucket with a little bit less water and a little bit less uh, filling up time and uh, dropping it, it, you know, looks different. And so this new guy was able to hold a lot more, taking a lot more, a lot faster, and then drop it in a larger distance. So that was pretty impressive to see. So a Firehawk is a, a, great- a helicopter? Was that the helicopter or a plane? Uh, correct. It's the helicopter. Yeah. So it it was act, it can actually fill water into the belly of the helicopter, right? How does Correct. it work? Um, yeah, I'd have to look back at my notes here, but it, I think it works in the same way where it kind of, you know, sucks it up from the, you know, the metal tank, if you know, belly, if you will, um, but a little bit less of a hose there. And uh, when it flies out, it's not dragging that bucket. And then it's able to suck it up a whole lot faster, kind of like your Chinook. And hold a lot more. Mm-hmm. So, and, it, and it's right over here, I believe, in, at Boggs, so Lake County area. So that that is that's really nice to have that, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, out of the um, the, Cobb, the Cobb Mountain area. Um, uh, I think 104, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. I had a 104 helicopter that got uh, retired, and this is the replaced uh, state of the art replacement. Well, Danila, every time yeah, yeah. I follow your page every time i click on to mendocino action news i get a sort of reality check about how many emergencies are happening in the county every single day it's like you um you are immediate you're nonstop, and during emergencies you're really on it and you went out to the scene of the broiler fire and were um reporting on mendocino action news from the scene what was what was that like being at the scene i mean were you able to get more information or more immediate information how do you vet the information um and how do you get that out to your readers right so when possible and when it's safe i i always tell people i like to get close enough to let them know what's going on but far enough back for you know, fire personnel and people that need to come and go to evacuate, right? I don't want to get myself in danger or get anyone else in danger. But the reason I go on scene is so that people can know two things. One, it's time to leave. Or two, it's so far away from you, you don't need to panic. Because a lot of people have gone through these fires and the, and the first thing they see when they see the smoke, um, many people still have PTSD, if you will, anxiety, adrenaline, uh, all these things kind of come into place. And so um, they hear a fires in Red Valley, it's taking off. But I was able to go on scene and say, look, it hasn't even gone on the other side of 101. 
It hasn't gone to State Street. It hasn't gone to downtown Rabbit Valley. It's on the west side of 101. It, it's it's away from the broiler. The broiler's fine. So it's not going towards the Humane Society, even though the Humane Society did a great job in evacuating several animals um, in a matter of moments with volunteers and a phone tree. Um, it was going the opposite way. So I was able to, to visually show them that in a live camera feed. I was also able to tell them that 101 was still open, that maybe the on and off ramp was closed, uh, maybe the and, and live show them that, you know, hey, this road here at Yuba Drive is closed, um, but you could still go up and down 101, which is important for people just going through or people that want to come and help evacuate or get stuff out of their own home. And then they can see that the aircraft that are above too, that it is getting handled. You know, there are resources on scene. Some people say, well, nobody's here, nobody's helping. No, there's, you know, hundreds of people here helping in the air and on the ground. So, um, you know, I've done that in the past too, where I've told people kind of a basic perimeter. Um, you know, I'm from Red Valley, so I can kind of give them a better idea even when it happened here and just say, hey, look, if you're in this area, I feel either A, it's under control, you know, it's starting to go white, it's starting to go smaller, it's starting to dissipate, or B, like on the 7th in Red Valley, this is getting out of control. You can see the wind pushing it. It's darker in many different spots. It's time to prepare, especially if you've got livestock in the area. Mm -hmm. Take those evacuation warnings seriously. Right. Well, and Ariel, you're the managing editor of, editor of a print daily, so a, a totally different kind of uh, medium or forum, which increasingly feels like something from an older way of life, you know, as we get models like Danila's, which are immediate and, you know, on the scene and live streaming on Facebook. How, you know, how does, how does you uh, kind of fit into the patchwork or the mosaic of media that, that we need in this county? And why is it important to keep printing rather than switching to exclusively online? Well, it's really interesting because I do recall um, when I was in college, um, seems like a lifetime ago, where um, our department got rid of, um, we used to have a print, uh, a newspaper for the faculty and students, and then we had a magazine, we had all these print products, and then we had an advice, and then a new advisor came in and said, you know what, print is dead, you know, everybody's going online, and we scrapped all the all the papers and all the, the print media, and so they call us like legacy media, or whatever uh, name they, they, they think of, but I think that um, I believe that print was no dead on the or the way out, and um, and then I found out I have through my experience working in our rural counties, and I've worked in uh, Texas in Lake Jackson as a reporter, and I've worked in other parts of the country, and I um, I realized it's all the demographics, you know, Lake County demographics, for example, we have a lot of retired older type folks who don't even have a smartphone or don't have the have good access to the internet, and furthermore. As you know, Alicia, we don't have good internet access. Unfortunately, broadband access has not penetrated um, the um, some of our counties. You know, with the same reach and the same um, ability as the other parts of the country. So I do think a print a product still has some validity and some uh, usefulness. But we obviously moved into the the new technologies, and we have our our, our um, you know if something breaks. Obviously, we'll have the record be um, website, and we'll have uh, social media, and all those um, all those um, additional channels for people to uh, to uh, tune into. So. Yeah, it's a different world. Yeah, it's kind of like radio as well and, and collaborating right. with Danila on these updates. It's like she's doing a phenomenal job, minute by minute updates on Facebook, but so many people don't have access that we 
they, we try to build yeah. in redundancy so that people can get it on the air as well at regular, you know, top of the hour intervals. So yeah, any all the different ways that people get their news, we need to we need to be there. And I wonder if there's even more ways that we can figure out um, for people to get to get the information that they need, especially as as we all know, we're in these increasingly dire kind of fire situation and pandemic situation and, um, you know, economic inequities that are impacting people's well-being and just all of these ways that people need to be informed that, um, you know, that we, we just are trying all of these different ways to reach them. I wonder, uh, go ahead, oh, Ariel. Yeah, no, go ahead. Well, I was just, just going to interject that. That is true. The new technology is definitely helpful, immediate, and definitely needed now. And more people are on social media. But I will, I will say that um, it is good to have um, some of the legacy stuff still available. I think back of 2016 or 17, and I was in Willits in, uh, around that time in Mendocino County. And um, when we had the big fire, we've had so many of them, I, I can't, can't even keep them straight in my mind, unfortunately. But we had one of the big fires and all the, the, the cell tower wires burned, you know. And I remember scrambling around with the radio person, one of our uh, radio uh, local radio journalists, trying to find a landline, you know, we went to the high school and there was a, a, a physical line of people trying to use the phone because there was no cell reception. And I was driving it around and I was here, the former, um, he's a former uh, sheriff now, you know, you guys have a new a new sheriff in, in Mendocino County, but um, uh, Alman, I think it was his name, and they'd have radio spots and they'd say, you know, turn to Facebook, turn to Facebook, you know, and I was like, we cannot turn to Facebook, Facebook you know, nobody has access to it, you know, so... There is that point that, um, and then subsequently, when I got to Lake County, I interviewed and talked to some of the CB radio operators. Now, they don't work directly with the county emergency, Office of Emergency Service or anything like that, but they, they definitely help and supplement with their um, uh, CB radios and, you know, communications so that people can have some type of access. So I think, you know, it's, it's important to have both is, I guess, the point I'm trying to make for those, especially in our um, rural areas. All right. Well, as we wrap up the interview, let's hear from each of you about what stories you're following and, and how we can follow your coverage. Danila? Well, I'm continuing to follow the fire in Redwood Valley as it just happened. Um, and there's still another family out there that was impacted. Um, I reported on two of them now, you know, seeing what their needs are going to be and continuing to uh, publish their GoFundMes right now. Um, and then there's going to be some cleanup efforts involved, I'm sure, with trees and, and debris removal. So we'll continue on that and any other emergency that comes up. I also want to say I agree that we all need all communications out there because even myself, as I rely on Facebook so much, many times I've had to leave the scene of the fire just to be able to come back and uh, get online because it wasn't available where I was, like with the Oak Fire, too. So I appreciate all communication right it's kind of it it would be a juggle in mendocino county to go out to the scenes of these uh fires and not have access to internet like there's no cell service out in a lot of these places so you're kind of running back to to get some reception and then going back out to the scene all right and how can people um cover uh, follow your coverage danilla um we have the page and then we have the group and they're all under mendocino action news okay so mendocino action news on facebook and I've seen a lot of people uh, thanking you profusely to this morning for your coverage of the broiler <laughs> fire. So thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. You're making me blush. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and Ariel Carmona of uh, Lake County Record B, tell us what stories you'll be following in the coming week and uh, how people can, can follow your coverage. Well, as I mentioned, Alicia, I um, would like to get some more deeper into the grand jury report. I mean, I think I've covered like 20 percent of it. And there's a lot of good information there about, um, you know, they did a really good job of looking into emergency evacuation, water, drought, uh, good, good topical information there. So we'll definitely be following up on that, writing some uh, information, summaries and editorials. And also um, PG&E for, has, um, is aiming, they've been working on some uh, microgrids. And just recently, our um, our contact with PG&E told us and let us know that we have them. They're gonna some of them are ready in Lake County. So this, they have the substation for generation for when they have the power safety shutoffs or when they're just an outage. And so Lakeport and North Lake County, South Lake County, and some of the smaller areas like Lucerne are gonna be getting there. I think Middletown. I think they said. Um, don't quote me on that because I gotta look back at my notes. But I think pretty sure that Middletown is gonna have. A, a microgrid or substation ready for backup generation. And, and, and they're aiming for like next month, like the beginning of August, which is fantastic. And I, they've been working this for a while and we'll definitely uh, let our readers know that we'll be following up on that. All right. And we can find you at newsstands and online. Yeah. We'll come back a little bit on the single copies on the newsstands, but you definitely can pick them up in, in key areas of the county. And um, you can go to recordb.com and get our, our our daily coverage and on Facebook as well. All right, terrific. Ariel Carmona, Managing Editor of the Lake County Record B, and Danila Sands, Administrator of Mendocino Action News. Thank you so much for being our local journalism roundtable this morning. Thank you. For You're welcome. Thank you so much right. for having us. Take care. And Take when care. we come back... I'll talk with Cap Radio's Scott Rod about his explosive reporting that uncovered Governor, Governor Gavin Newsom's lies about how much wildfire prevention work has been done to protect our fire-prone communities in California, including here in Mendocino County, and how Scott's reporting may have just shamed the governor into restoring half a billion dollars in funding for wildfire prevention efforts. That's coming up next here on Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. Stay tuned. I just got good news. I just got good news. The press is hitting the streets with my delivery. Making all headlines and makes a scene quick on the daily. And all of the people gather street preacher out of my mind and i'm going all out i tend to overcommit but with news this good you'll want to hear it i just got good news this is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales, and my next guest is Cap Radio's Scott Rod. Two weeks ago, he published a damning investigation along with NPR's California Newsroom, revealing that Governor Newsom misrepresented how many acres of wildfire prevention projects have been completed ahead of what threatens to be one of the worst years for fire in recent history or possibly ever. Despite big talk about overhauling the state's approach to wildfires, according to Scott's reporting, Governor Newsom actually reduced the state's budget for these projects, lengthened timelines, and then lied about how much work was actually done. Scott Rod, thank you for coming on KZYX this morning to tell us about your reporting. 
Thanks so much for having me on. It's uh, really kind of breathtaking to get into the ins and outs of this story. So I wonder uh, if you can just kind of tell us what you discovered about the claims versus reality of wildfire work here in California. How big was the lie? So I guess first I'll say um, we were cautious not to use the word lie. Um, you know, that definitely, um, you know, it's a big word. It has to, you know, you have to prove that there was clear intent. Um, and that's obviously a tricky thing to prove. But we did use the word misled. We thought that that was appropriate. And uh, our, our reporting found a couple essential things. Uh, early in Newsom's term, he, he announced that he wanted to tackle these 35 priority fuel reduction projects. So that includes things like uh, forest thinning, fuel breaks, prescribed burns. And uh, he, he came out about a year later in early 2020 after work on these projects was being done. And he said, hey, mission accomplished. We've completed all of them. We treated 90,000 acres. Um, but our reporting in the state's own data shows that they had actually only done work on less than 12,000 acres. So that's about 13% of what Newsom claimed. And in the bigger picture, we looked at the work overall that was being done, not just on those priority projects. And we found that last year, fire prevention work had actually dropped by about half. And so we saw that there was being misrepresentation of how much work was being done on these specific priority projects, but then also overall, just the work being done last year dropped off significantly. So what kind of work are you talking about with fire, uh, wildfire reduction projects? What, what, what were they talking about in terms of the work and then what was actually done? So the priority projects included, you know, fuel breaks, which um, typically is cutting out vegetation along a specific line or a specific area to stop uh, the advance of fires. Uh, it can also help serve as um, it can also help serve as evacuation routes. And they also did vegetation thinning across bigger areas um, that'll usually cover, um, you know, a much broader sort of area. The spots where we found that they misrepresented uh, how much work was done were typically those areas that um, promised prescribed burns or th forest thinning, you know, where there was a much bigger area that they promised work, um, but they had only done a small portion of it. Um, and there are actually examples up in Ukiah and Willits where they had pretty significantly overstated uh, just how mer just how much work they, they, they actually did. When you talk about significantly overstated, I know um, the projects that you're talking about are the Western Hills fuel a shaded fuel break project that anyone who lives in around, around Ukiah can see every day. We know that it's that those projects were happening. I think there were some in the Eastern Hills as well. And then up in Willits, which got hit very hard by a wildfire last year, uh, there was some significant thinning projects and fire break projects on the east side of the valley. Um, what, um, so tell us about the, the, the planning versus the reality of what happened in both of these plans, because these are right in our neighborhood. Yeah, in both of those areas, there were um, thousands of acres that were essentially promised to be treated, um, and uh, only a, only a very small only a very small portion of them actually got done. And you know, Cal Fire has since said the work that they did complete in those areas protected 
the larger area protected the thousands of acres that were originally identified to be treated. And so, uh, you know, take that as you will. Um, you know, they, they identified the area up front. They did a certain amount of work. Um, there has been reporting, including some reporting, some really great reporting from the San Francisco Chronicle that showed that uh, those fuel breaks and that vegetation management wasn't very effective at stopping some of those fires. Um, you know, a number of fires since that work was was done have actually just kind of blown through some of these fuel breaks or has just burned right through them. So the idea of protecting those areas, it hasn't really held up to what we've seen in terms of the 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 damage that the fires have done in recent years. Uh, and again, it's worth noting, CAL FIRE has said that some of the fuel breaks have protected um, some communities, including some in Fresno, um, as well as some in Butte County. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating because uh, if you take a walk out anywhere in the county, uh, you'll see a lot of downed trees. You'll see a lot of areas that, that just cry out for um, some sort of uh, thinning or uh, a lot of areas that have been logged and that ha the the trees have grown back really densely and it just you know walking around in the county is a little bit scary we had a huge uh, snowstorm this winter that brought down a lot of trees and those trees are now dry and and just kind of hanging out in the forest like tinder um, so these projects that you're talking about are really important and i have a couple of questions um about first of all the the willets and the ukiah projects you have maps uh in your in your online report that goes along with your radio reporting that that shows a massive area i think the ukiah one is twenty six thousand five hundred and forty one acres that were part of the project and then 734 of them were actually treated. So this is a huge discrepancy in areas that are really crying out for treatment. And then in the Willits Fuels Reduction Project, it was 11,965 acres and just 262 acres were actually treated. Um, so my, so it's like I said, it's kind of breathtaking, but also like who's responsible for this? Is this Cal Fire? And, and how were you able, like whose files or who's, uh, who did you go to, to, to monitor and assess the projects, uh, and, and the progress on the projects that, that ultimately resulted in you discovering that there had just been this huge misrepresentation of how much work had been done? So we started our reporting on the premise that Governor Newsom has talked about these priority projects for over a year. You know, after he after he announced that they had been completed, um, he, he's talked about them at pretty much every wildfire press conference I can think of in the last 18 months. So we wanted to look at, you know, well, what has he done since then? And what did these priority projects actually do? So we started requesting data from CAL FIRE about the prevention work that had been done. And we started to see in the numbers that this 90,000 acre number that had been thrown around wasn't really squaring with some of the data we were seeing. And they gave us sort of just completed acres over the course of, you know, each year. And I asked, you know, where, where's the 90,000? It doesn't really fit. And that's when it started to become clear that the 90,000 wasn't what it was chalked up to be. It was, it was, you know, what they treated was significantly less. So that's when we started digging further into, you know, each project. What did they complete? What did they claim was going to be done? Um, so that was sort of the premise and the start of our reporting. Um, and as you said, this, this stuff, it's really important. I mean, these are the, the purpose of these 
projects was to protect some of the most vulnerable communities um, that, that face wildfire threats. Um, so, you know, if work was not done that was promised, I, I mean, that, that's, that's a serious thing. Well, especially if the governor is going around to these press conferences and talking about it as if it's been done, you know, it gives us a, a, a very warped sense of the need and the progress of what's happening in our communities. But is it Cal Fire that's responsible for doing this work or is it other contractors who, who actually is supposed to do the work? So these projects specifically um, fall under Cal Fire. Uh, I believe on some of them they teamed up with some um uh, conservancies, but if, but but primarily, it was Cal Fire that was supposed to be doing these projects. Um, in general, uh, fire fuel reduction work uh, is done by Cal Fire, but also uh, local fire councils and conservancies. There will be some private landowners that also handle it as well, and that's on the state side. Of course, the federal government is also responsible for doing fuel treatments, but on these projects specifically, uh, it's Cal Fire's responsibility. And and what did Cal Fire say to you when you brought up the discrepancies? So they again, they said that that these that the work that was done, the less than twelve thousand acres of work that they did, protected all ninety thousand acres that had been originally identified. So that was that was what they said, sort of uh, where they landed on it, and and why they felt comfortable with the work that they did. Uh, in my conversation with Cal Fire Director Tom Porter, um, it was clear that they had identified a much bigger area for treatment not just protecting, but actually getting work done on that area. But they faced challenges from the jump. I mean, they, they had environmental reviews that were challenging to, to, to meet. They um, had some difficulties with private landowners where some of the some of the project area had overlapped with. So it's clear that they did not complete the area that they set out um and so they've determined or that again they they believe that all that all that acreage is is protected a a good a good chunk of it has burned since then from fires um so again take it with a grain of salt as to whether or not it's protected um but that's that's where cal fire landed on it that's their position and what about the governor's office what's their response been the governor's office, they they largely deferred to Cal Fire. Um, in fact, I, I reached out to them twice before the story came out for requesting interviews with either Governor Newsom or one of his uh, top cabinet members that focuses on wildfires. And uh, at first, actually didn't hear back at all. I uh, requested an interview. I laid out all of our findings in a pretty lengthy email, didn't hear back. And um, since then, you know, they, they've basically gone through CAL FIRE and the State Natural Resources Agency, and they've essentially deferred to that position that um, despite the fact that they claimed 90,000 acres were treated, those are their words, um, they say that the full the full acreage, the full project areas are protected, again, despite the fact that they have burned in recent years. That is so interesting. Well, the other thing that that you have continued, the story has continued to unfold, is um, you've reported on uh, Governor Newsom uh, basically kind of defunding some of the wildfire efforts. And, and mo most recently, you have a story about him um, retreating on a billion dollars of wildfire prevention planning um, ahead of his meeting with President Biden. Uh, can you tell us how this story continues to unfold? 
Sure. Yeah, this was a this was sort of a funny one to follow. The the but uh, you know following state budgets is always kind of a tricky thing. Uh, in May, Governor Newsom came out and he said, "I want to spend two billion dollars on on wildfires in our in in the budget." And when you dug into the numbers, it was a, quite a bit less than that. Some of the money had already been spent, and you know basically when you got down to it. He wanted to spend $700 million in new funding for wildfire prevention, which it's worth noting is definitely more than we've spent in in past years. That's a lot of money. The legislature came back and their their budget proposal actually had a billion dollars. So they upped the ante. Then something weird happened. In the negotiations between the governor and the legislature, they arrived at a number that was significantly less. It was about $450 million. So that left a lot of people scratching their heads. You know, not just me, but also a number of lawmakers, budget experts I talked to said, we have no idea how they landed at this number um, because it's less, again, than what both sides had originally proposed. So after some digging, after some reporting, it became clear that they had taken a chunk of the money and said, we're going to just save it for next year. And the reason they did that is largely because Cal Fire doesn't have the capacity to spend all of that money in one year on these fire prevention projects. They just don't have projects that are either shovel ready or the ability to identify the projects and move them through the approval processes to then start spending this money. So it's sort of a weird problem to have where you have more money than you can get out the door for these projects. Um, and so since then, um, since our reporting and since, uh, you know, there's been a little bit of political pushback, we just published a story last night that sh- that um, last night that showed that the administration and the legislature have agreed to pull back or rather take half a billion dollars that they were saving for next year and, and instead make it available for this year. There's still some caveats there. There have to be some approvals to make sure that the money can be spent, but they are making it available for this year. So they have reinstated the $500 million that they rolled back. Yes, exactly. The money that they were saying, oh, we'll hold off for next year. Uh, they're, they're saying, yes, we're going to make it available for this year. All right. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. And my guest is Cap Radio's Scott Rod, who published a, an investigation with NPR's California Newsroom about Governor Newsom's misrepresentations about how many acres of wildfire prevention projects have been completed uh, in vulnerable communities across the state, particularly 35 uh, priority projects including one in Ukiah and one in Willits. Um, and so we're talking about the fallout from that report, but what you just said I think is 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 crucial for those of us who live in communities that um, are have burned and are very vulnerable to burning again. And that is that CAL FIRE, uh, and we'll kind of expand that to the state of California through you know CAL FIRE as the agency of California that's supposed to do this work, just simply does not have the capacity to do the scale of work that is needed in our state to protect our communities from increasing risk of catastrophic wildfire. Um, what does that mean for us? What needs to happen in order to uh, get the work done that needs to be done in our in our forests? And also, um, tagging this on, I'm concerned about the environmental impacts of, of some of this 
thinning, which can also be described in cases as logging. We have a, a, a struggle happening at Jackson Demonstration State Forest, which is managed by Cal Fire, and they're taking large second growth trees and uh, they're not directly calling this logging plan a fire mitigation plan, but uh, they're definitely claiming that it's fire wise to do that. So there's, you know, a need both for capacity for getting the work done and also oversight to make sure that we don't have uh, devastating environmental consequences of the scale of thinning work that needs to be done. Um, and it feels like we're just looking at, um, we're looking at a situation that is just massive and needs the state to really respond. Is Cal Fire the right agency to do this? The, the agency that's responsible for fighting the wildfires, are they also the agency that should be responsible for uh, doing the thinning or, or, or would it make more sense to create a new agency or to move it to a different agency who has more capacity? That's a great question. Um, and that's an ongoing debate right now. Uh, you know, in the legislature, there's a proposal that would split off a lot of those responsibilities. And sorry if you hear my dog in the background, he's getting a little antsy right now. I apologize. <laughs> that's okay. He's um, really cute. <laughs> <laughs> he, he always seems to know when I'm, you know, doing an interview. Um, that's when he gets most rambunctious. But there is an ongoing debate right now about um, splitting off those responsibilities for doing fire prevention work so that the folks who fight fire can focus on fighting fire and then have a separate workforce that will do this prevention work and not be pulled away from doing that work when there are fires breaking out. Because right now it's sort of a zero-sum tug-of-war happening where once fires start to break out, the prevention work starts to fall off because you just have a very limited um, firefighting force. So that, that's an ongoing debate right now for sure. Um, there's also recognition that CAL FIRE itself is pretty limited in what it can do. And so there's increasing interest in getting grant money out to conservancies, getting grant money out to local fire councils to do this work, especially because, you know, there is a, a lot of the forest land in California is privately owned. And so a lot of that has to be contracted. It, it can't simply be Cal Fire going in and doing the work. So I think there's a recognition that it needs to be more than just Cal Fire doing this work. And again, as I mentioned before, there is a lot of federal forest land in California, and um, there's an expectation of the federal government also holding up its end of the bargain and in, in doing a lot of this uh, fuel reduction work as well. Yeah, and the, and the federal side of things, the Mendocino National Forest, the Yellow Bully Wilderness, all of that area on the east side of us burned almost entirely last year during the August complex fire. So, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, we're bailing out the ship at this point, but there's <laughs> we've taken on a lot of water already. And so we're trying to, what do they say, laying the tracks as the train is, is barreling ahead? You know, it's like we're in trouble. And so this kind of misrepresentation and, and you know, kind of messing around with the, the reporting, it doesn't it doesn't inspire confidence for us in communities that really, really need the state to get this right. Yeah, and, and experts I spoke to, they said they said sort of two things in response to this. You know, one, the 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 tracking of data and the you know compiling of data and representation of the data to the public, it has to be accurate. It has to be consistent because. You know, the state does have ambitious targets to reach for its fuel reduction, and we're not going to get there if we don't accurately track and compile this data. Um, and that's been a, that's been a problem, according to these experts, not just in this instance, but kind of generally. Data tracking has always been an issue. This 
case is a fairly public example of that. Um, but they also say that, you know, the, the state needs to be doing significantly more work than they're doing right now. And so before we were talking about nuisance priority projects um, in 90,000 acres, and that would actually be a pretty significant increase in work um, if they had actually completed it. However, experts are saying, you know, we need to do half a million, a million acres a year in order to start making a dent in this. And not just for one year or two years, but for like a decade, for decades, plural. So that's sort of the scale that we're at. And they say, you know, it's it seems like a monumental task and in a way it is, but there really isn't any other option. You know, we've done fire suppression for decades, you know, about a century, you know, that's been our primary way of, of dealing with fires. And it's, we've shown that, you know, it was effective for a little while, but now it's certainly not. We have all of this buildup in the forest and we cannot firefight our way out of this problem. So that's what we're facing. Basically, the, the bill is coming due on a century of fire suppression land management. Yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. It, it, again, fire suppression, you know, very aggressive fire uh, suppression, it, it worked for a little while. You know, it seemed like the way to go. Um, but over time, what that's resulted in is this underbrush, this lower vegetation, these ladder fuels that create the ability of fire to build up into, you know, much bigger fires that can catch much larger trees on fire. Um, that's set the scene, that's set the stage for, um, you know, these fires to burn largely out of control where suppression, it's very difficult to combat these much bigger fires with suppression. So, that's, I think you're absolutely right. The bill has come due where, you know, this century of fire suppression, it, it's just not no longer going to work. It, it's become clear that prevention has to be an essential piece of our firefighting approach. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, that involves fuel breaks, forest thinning, prescribed burns on a scale uh, that we've never, that we've never seen before. You said, um, did you say half a million acres should be treated each year? They say half a million, even up to a million acres, a number of acres, a number of experts say a million acres, which is just, it's a tremendous amount. I mean, it's, it's so much more than we're doing right now. And, you know, Cal Fire, I should say the state and the federal government have a combined effort, have a combined goal to reach a million acres per year by 2025. But just to illustrate how challenging this is, at the end of Governor Brown's administration, he signed an executive order that set that 500,000 acre goal. It's, it's a half a million for both the state and the federal government. That's how they're going to reach the million. On the state side, he signed an executive order that said, I want the state to do all, everything necessary, take every necessary step to reach half a million acres by 2023. Our reporting found that Governor Newsom actually pushed that back to 2025, just in the last year. So it's, it illustrates how there have been ambitious goals for doing this work, but it's going to be really hard. You know, we're already pushing back the deadlines that we're setting to try to reach this ambitious goal. And of course, none of this operates in a political vacuum. Um, 
<laughs> it's okay. He can be <laughs> your puppy can be on KZYX. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's making lots of noise in the background. I'm sorry. I apologize. It's okay. It's it's a it's a feature, not a bug. Um, so, but we uh, we do not operate in a political vacuum. That all of this has uh, political implications. Of course, Cal Fire is also CDF, the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. Um, and of course, over the last several years, they they the the firefighting side has just become much, much bigger, much more funded, much more urgent because of the catastrophic, cataclysmic wildfires that our state has been facing. Uh, but they are also part of the legacy of this problem, having managed private lands forestry and created conditions out there in the forest. And, and you know, I'll say that sort of unequivocally created conditions in the forest that are more prone to logging, to, or I'm sorry, more prone to catastrophic wildfires with the legacy of deforestation here in our in our communities um so i'm wondering how the politics are going to change where are the pressure points to actually go from it kind of sounds like a new deal style change that's needed in our forests how are we going to go from where we are now which is almost 12,000 acres were treated and and the the numbers were misrepresented when they were talked about to 500,000 acres of really you know uh competent and crucial thinning and fire breaks and, and wildfire treatment. How do we get there? It seems impossible. I think there has been a, a shift in the in, in the legislature among lawmakers and and just in general about um, the importance of fire prevention and the idea of using fire, prescribed fire, to treat land to hopefully stave off bigger fires fires, more serious out of control fires, you know, using fuel breaks, using fuel reduction. Um, I, I think that's, it's become clear, especially since last year, since, you know, 2018, that this has to happen. Um, you know, you're seeing a bipartisan effort um, of, of lawmakers trying to introduce bills. And, and, and the exact answer is unclear at this point. You know, you have folks introducing bills that would create a separate fire prevention workforce. As I mentioned before, you have other folks who are introducing bills that would um, waive certain re certain requirements for prescribed burns. You also have uh, bills being introduced that would waive environmental reviews for some of this, which raises other potential problems, right? You, you can't sort of, you can't solve one issue without potentially raising others. Um, now, the exact, so the exact answer is unclear, but I think there is a greater political will. And, and it's also interesting to see that the idea of spending, it, it, it isn't really concerning a lot of lawmakers in terms of, you know, you're seeing Republican lawmakers who are looking at the money that is being spent on wildfire prevention, a tremendous amount of money. And they're saying, we want more, spend more money. And, and it's, not typical to see, um, you know, folks from both sides of the aisle saying, yes, more money, more money. Mm. Usually there's a tension there. Yeah, it makes you're, you wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are they so, up to? Yeah. So the, there, I think there is the political will, but the exact answers, um, that's still unclear. Um, and I think a lot of people are looking at this problem in the magnitude of it and saying exactly what you said, mm -hmm. which is this, this feels almost impossible. You know, how are we going to get there? Right. Is there a role for local communities to have a voice in this, in this? conversation absolutely there are um you know local fire councils there are local conservancies there are groups that help organize and work with the state to get grants that can do this sort of work some of its prescribed burns you obviously have to have some clear um you know some um 
specialty background with that, but other stuff is more mechanical in terms of fuel reduction. So that is a possibility. Um, it, it, beyond that, you know, there's also, there goes my dog again, apologies. Um, beyond that, there's also the responsibility of local homeowners to do hardening and clearing of, of brush around their home that, you know, fi uh, fire folks say that's incredibly important and especially, you know, for the individual to ensure that their home is protected, so, you know, making sure that the area around them, they have a defensible space. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Scott Rod of Cap Radio, thank you so much. How can people continue to follow your coverage of this important issue? Uh, you can follow along at capradio.org. We'll be publishing more stories, and we expect to actually publish one uh, next week. So keep an eye out for it. All right. Capradio.org. Thank you so much. Thank and you. This has been Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. I'll be back in two weeks with more local journalism and local newsmakers. Thanks so much for listening and take care, everybody. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.